at what I say about myself, and to even question the words and the phraseology, the descriptions that someone uses of themselves, is to bring the charge of insensitivity, or increasingly more likely, hatred. Now these ideas are abroad in the world, but the problem we have is with many, as with many ideas in the world, they can creep into the church. And we can become increasingly challenged as to how we um, will react to these things. There is some debate I've seen online at the moment about transgender weddings and whether Christians should or should not attend. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole this morning, but nevertheless, the whole of that debate is coming within the church. How do we treat people who come in who identify in ways which we would challenge? Now, it's broad in the wider church, but increasingly that can come in to the true church. So what I'd like to do this morning is to perhaps begin, just really begin, to look at how do we consider our response to these thoughts and these practices and descriptions in our society? How are we to identify ourselves and how are we to respond when people ask us that question? The only way that we can respond and truly understand how we should respond is to have a clear view of what scripture teaches about what makes us us. What makes me who I am, what makes you what you are, what makes us all human beings. That is the definition that God gives. And far from the divisive, narrow, modern definitions, Scripture gives a clear, unifying definition of how we are to identify ourselves. And it's that that I want to consider this morning. So our text really is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Probably not going to have time to look at male and female created in them, but maybe that's for next time. So, essentially, when we're asked to wonder how do we identify ourselves, how does God identify us? He identifies us as human beings made in his image. That is the critical thing that we need to consider. When we're asked how we identify ourselves, how should people identify themselves? The first thing that we must say is, we must say is, we are created in the image of God. That is the key thing. And that gives us particular spiritual attributes, such as love, self-awareness, justice, grace, and mercy, that are distinctive to the human race. So, the, um, the first thing then that we need to, to consider is what does, the, what does it mean to be made in God's image? Because I want to, uh, to consider uh, really three things this morning as we, as we come to this, uh, to this topic. Um, and that is, um, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? What does it mean to be made in His image? And then, having understood what it means for us to be made in his image, we can then look at two ways that we can apply that. First of all, that being made in God's image is exclusive to the human race. It is only man that is 
is made in God's image. And then secondly, the second point of application is that man's image is inclusive in that all mankind are made in God's image. There is no aspect of mankind, of the human race, that is outside of that image of God. And that has important implications as to how we deal with different peoples within society. So first of all then, we are made in God's image. What does that mean? Well, it's not, first of all, it's not anything to do with our physical attributes. It's not like, oh, he's the spitting image of his father, or oh, she's, she's her grandmother to a T. It's nothing to do with our physical attributes. That's not to say that our physical attributes and our human body is not, uh, is not something that God creates, and God did create, and God uses that to constitute us as different from him because we have a physical body. Animals and humans all have bodies, and that shows that we are common in our design. God created the physical world and created us with human bodies. And whilst we are unique in our identities and we are distinct from uh, other aspects of uh, God's creation, particularly the animal kingdom, nevertheless there are similarities. We all have eyes, noses, legs, arms, to the point that there is a common creator, and there is a commonality to our creation. But it's the unique creation of mankind, or unique to the creation of mankind, that God says, God created us in his image. And that means, fundamentally, that we have a spiritual dimension to our being. And that is what distinguishes us from all other creatures. So whilst our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19, and we are to use our bodies as instruments of righteousness, Romans 6, verses 12 and 13. The body is not essential to us being in the image of God. We can see that. We can see the Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. The martyrs in there are praising God, are worshipping God, are exhibiting the image of God that that means, but also they don't have physical bodies. And we also know that the body that we currently have is fallen. We know that because in Philippians 3 verse 21 we're told that when Christ returns he will transform our lowly body uh, that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able to subdue even all things to himself. So the body that we have now is not something that uh, that, will, that, uh, that is essentially the image of God, because it one day will be transformed. Essentially, the image of God means that we have that spiritual nature to ourselves. So what does that mean? Well, man, first of all, has the capacity to know and to worship God. That is what the image gives to us. In the Garden of Eden, man walked and communed with God. Before the fall, he was able to walk, commune with God in perfect harmony. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 says, God has put eternity into man's heart. That means that we have the ability to understand who God is and to recognize what is required, i.e. that we are to worship him. With this capacity, God expects man to worship him and him alone. Thus that makes that clear. 
and he's challenged by Satan in the wilderness to bow down and worship Satan. In Matthew 4, verse 10, Jesus says, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Quoting Deuteronomy 6, verse 10. So the first aspect of the image is that man can know God and knows how to worship him. Bear in mind that everything we say about the image of God was as it was established perfectly in the Garden of Eden and was then damaged by the fall. So we know, therefore, that this aspect of knowing and worshipping God has been damaged by the fall. Therefore, men often don't want to know God now in their fallen state, don't want to worship Him. But nevertheless, we have the capacity to know and worship God because we the second thing that the image of God gives to us, or how we describe ourselves, is that man has the capacity to exercise creativity. We are commanded to populate the earth, be fruitful, and to multiply, and we have the capacity to create things, to create things of beauty, to create things that are good, because that's what God did. And that's that, as that aspect of the image within us. We can create things of beauty. And we can also create things that have a function to help us live on the earth. We have that creative ability within us, which, means, which is part of the image of God. The third aspect that the image of God means is that we have dominion over the earth. Verse 28 says that we are to have dominion over the earth to subdue it and to, to rule over all the living things that are on the earth. God delegates to man the responsibility for ruling the earth as part of his image. That's confirmed in, uh, in Psalm 8, verses 5 to 11. You have made them, as man, a little lower than the angel, angels, and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands, and put everything under their feet, all the flocks and herds, the animals of the wild, the birds, in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the parts of the seas. So God has given us dominion. Part of the image of God is that we have dominion over the earth. We are to rule over it. Again, tainted by the fall, such that we now have dominance rather than dominion, but we nevertheless, as part of the image of God, we have dominion over the earth. Then we have fact that the image of God gives us the capacity to love. First and foremost, we love God, but also we have a love for each other. The commandments given in Exodus 20 were all about loving God and loving uh, other human beings. Christ summarized the commandments of God with the, with, the, with the phrase, you shall love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. We have the capacity to love, which is part of the image of God. And then there is the innate morality that mankind has. Part of the image of God is that we have an innate morality. We know right from wrong. Micah 6 verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to have mercy, and to walk humbly your God. We are called to, we are, we're told that we have 
innate, that innate ability to understand the difference between right and wrong. Therefore, that is how God judges us as human beings, able to have that capacity to determine what is right and what is wrong, and then to follow those things. Now, throughout church history, there's been much debate about the effect of sin on the image of God. Because clearly, as we go through that, as we look around society now, we know we live in a fallen society. So the image of God has been tainted. But nevertheless, there are truths that unify us together in as having the image of God. The first is that the Bible says that even after the fall, mankind is still created in God's image. He says that in Genesis 9, verse 6, and in James 3, verses 8 and 9. So despite the fall, we are still image bearers of God. And then secondly, sin has a devastating effect on the image of God. Romans 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Isaiah 59, verses 1 to 4, also tells us that we have, uh, we have a sin within us and that has had a devastating effect on our relationship with God. It is tainted the image. And then finally, we know that through Jesus Christ's substitutionary atonement and resurrection, mankind can be forgiven and can be conformed to the image of Christ. We can rediscover what it is to have that image of God and those thought processes and those attributes that God has given to us. So the image of God is all about how, uh, how we identify ourselves as being spiritual beings, able to have that relationship with God, and then to have those attributes that God has given to us. That is what God says about mankind. So, what are the implications of course? There are two areas ultimately. The first thing is that the image of God is man's, and man's exclusively. Now, God does not endow any other aspects of his creation with that image of God, the way in which he does for man. Creation shines forth, yes, with the glory of God, but it doesn't have this image of God. Nor does any part of the creation know how to know God, is expected to worship him, is held to account for their actions. Creation does not have man's ability to create in the likeness of God does. Animals may develop simple tools to enable them to, uh, to survive, but there is no complex thought process that they go through to design and to develop things which can assist them. No creature can create works of art, music, literature, and other things that characterize man's creativity. It's creation that is subject to man, and man is able to subdue creation, to use it to care for it and to use it for the mutual benefit of all on the planet. The created order doesn't know how to exhibit love. Even within the animal kingdom, there can be care and compassion between, uh, between animals, but that's nowhere near the breadth and the depth of human emotion that we have. And nature is also wild and toothed and cruel. There is no moral compass within nature as to how to behave. If an animal is hungry, it will simply kill another animal to feed itself. So 
we must not be dismissive of the wonder, the beauty, the glory, and the majesty of creation, but it's of a lesser level to us because it is not that which is created in the image of God. Psalm, 100, Psalm 19 verse 1 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows forth his handiwork. But declaring God's glory is not possessing the image and the glory of God within us. Even in our fallen state, man nevertheless has the, the image of God within him. Dominion is now abused to the point where we now exploit our planet. It's and it's right, therefore, that as believers we seek to address this. We stand out for it and we say, no, we should not exploit our planet, we should not do it down, but rather we should have responsibility for the planet to look after our surroundings. Care for the planet is therefore a concern that all Christians should have. We must, however, be wary of the modern environmentalist movement that is going about and the anti-Christian philosophy that underlies this. Often, the environmental age views Mother Nature as the all-encompassing product of evolution, of which man is a part, albeit an important part, albeit maybe the most significant part. But nevertheless, nature is different. It is at a lower level because it does not bear God's image. And the danger we have in the environmental movement is that the, the non-bearing image of creation around us is elevated such that he's made as important as mankind is. And therefore, by elevating nature up to the same level as man, we diminish man's distinctive nature from him. And this thinking can have serious implications. There is now apparently a new movement that is being, uh, that is being started by a group of lawyers, philosophers, and scientists. A mix of everything as well, but nevertheless, this movement is seeking to give nature the same legal rights as human beings. Now, this doesn't mean that it's going to start a tree preservation order on every plant everywhere in the world, but what it does mean is that it is going and seeking to give the same legal protection to nature as it does to mankind. And what they are trying to suggest is that that person who late last year went up to Hadrian's Wall and chopped down the sycamore back tree would be as guilty of the same crime as having gone up and killed a human being standing next to nature, standing next to Hadrian's Wall. Because in elevating nature to the same level as man, you place nature on the same Same, uh, that, that same level. Therefore, what we need to do is we need to uphold the responsibility we have to care for nature. Yes, but we must reject the fact that this can be done without God's order. Nature is always subjected, subject, should always be subject to man. A man should always be elevated above nature. There should never be equality existence between those two, because the image of God elevates us above this. In a similar way to the broader aspect of nature, there is also this idea that 
animals are, again, of the same order as human beings. Again, this isn't simply animal welfare legislation to stop us abusing animals and suffering, and suffering at the hands of fallen man. But modern thinking is going beyond this. Animals are now described as, sen as sentient human beings. They have the same feelings and the same emotions, we're told, as man. And their ability to feel pain and to suffer is used to justify arguments that say that we should not treat them um, differently to man. Man is simply a more evolved animal, but nevertheless an evolved animal. And therefore, animals should have the same rights as human beings. And such arguments have been used to, to drive towards vegetarianism and veganism. And we're told that we mustn't exploit animals for food or for anything else because they're the same as us at the end of the day. But God has made it clear that would not be so. In Genesis 9, verses 2 and 3, he said, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast on the earth, and every bird of the air, and all that move on the earth, and all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you these things, even as the green herbs. God is clear. We are to use nature, and we are to use nature for our benefit. And these things have a habit of extending, don't they? Recently, the, uh, the, the broadcaster Stephen Fry has said that the king's guards must no longer wear bearskin hats, because to do so is exploitative of the animal kingdom. It's wrong for us to exploit animals in order to clothe ourselves. Presumably, that logical thinking means that we should use synthetic oil-based products and all the environmental difficulties that that has. But nevertheless, our falling dominion may cause us to abuse animals and need to stand against that. But we are not to reject the fact that God has given us animals to use for our benefits. We are the image bearers. We are those who are elevating above all aspects of creation. That is how God has ordained it. This is not fashionable teaching, but it is what the Bible tells us. We, mankind, are exclusively bearers of the image. So, the other implication then, if we are exclusively the image, is that we also, the image of God is also inclusive, in that it means that all men bear God's image. All men. Yes, not nature, not animals, but all men. Without exception. That is the clear teaching of what God says in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. He said, let us make man in our image. Mankind was made in image. All men bear God's image. Which means that all men are accountable to God for their actions. Were it not for the, that fact, then Genesis 3, sin that entered the world, men could cop out because we're not image bearers, we're nothing more than simply other unevolved animals. But no, God is clear. We are responsible because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That can only be the case if we are image bearers of God. 
That image is tarnished, yes, but it is not ruined. And it's important for us to remember that and to proclaim that to all men. Failure to do so leads to a wrong view of our standing before God and our culpability of sin. It means that the status of certain groups could therefore be challenged. And isn't that what society has done down the ages? We nevertheless must acknowledge that the image of God resides in all, even those who are our opponents, even those who are different from us. One of the evils of the slave trade, I don't just mean the Atlantic slave trade, but slavery down the ages, is that slaves have been identified as being something other than the people who are enslaving them. They are somehow lesser. And there was, during this, the 17th and 18th century, a movement that tried to depict Africans as somehow not really bearing the image of God, because that way we can treat them how we want. And that's the danger. If we start removing the image of God and start saying that different beings are not perhaps the same as us, they're not, um, not to be regarded as being image bearers of God, then that creates problems because we can then start treating people how we want because they're not like us, they're different. We are image bearers of God, but they're not. We see this sometimes when we get into areas of conflict and wars where the enemy is portrayed not like us, but somehow lesser than us. Think about the, the current conflict in the Middle East. Some would say all Palestinians are evil, they're trying to drive the Jews into the Mediterranean Sea, therefore they're, 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 they're beyond the pale. Others would say the Jews, the Zionists, have occupied that land and are seeking to destroy the Palestinians. And you can see how those thoughts, real hatred that was developed between two groupings, shows that because of, because of that hatred that exists, people can end up being reviewed as not like us, not as good as us, whereas God says they are all image bearers of God. And therefore, we need to, 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 to treat each other in that way. And history is riddled with examples of that. The Nazis during the 1930s looked at the Aryan race as the pure, perfect race, and all other races and all other peoples were rudimentary, subhuman. They were therefore, in their eyes, in their teaching, not human like us, not bearing God's image, therefore we can do with them as we like. We see it. Unfortunately, this idea of, of us using disparaging, unhuman uh, descriptions of, um, of our opponents in the political sphere. I don't often agree with what much of what the Archbishop of Canterbury says, but recently he came out and said 2024 is going to be an election year and he's called for a debate, the debates that go on in the run up to the general election, to be conducted in a way where we look at other people and treat other people like human beings. And that is how we are to treat, to treat them. And it is never appropriate to call our enemy, our political opponents, anything less than human. To use terms like scum, that means someone is not to be regarded as a human being, 
get to be regarded as something that is different. But what does Christ say? Christ says that we are to love our enemies. We are to pray for those who spitefully use us and persecute us because we are all image bearers of God. We are never to dismiss um, um, other human beings as somehow lesser than ourselves. This comes to, to the fore, particularly when we think about people who've committed heinous crimes. And often, someone who's been convicted of multiple murder, of child murder, the, the trial goes through, the person is convicted, and somebody, representative of the family, says, how do you feel? And they say, I hope that animal never gets out of prison. That is wrong. No matter what that person has done, they must never simply be dismissed as an animal. Animals do not have a moral aspect to their nature. They act as they feel they should. We, as human beings, are moral beings. A person who commits a heinous crime is a responsible, moral human being. They should be treated as such, but also they should be held to account as such. We have complete moral responsibility because we have the image of God. It also means having the image of God means that we must treat all people, regardless of their level of capacity, as those who bear the image of God. There is a belief in our society now that once someone gets by their use, gets, gets past their useful gates, somehow they are of lesser worth. Someone who is perhaps now gone beyond who's got a particular illness, well, they're not as worthy now as they as they once were. And we should perhaps regard those people as those who can be disposed of. People who don't have the same intellectual capacity, who've got some kind of mental capacity issues, can be looked as somehow different, somehow lesser than those of us who are conscientious. Now, few people are actually prepared to articulate that. But when we think about the attitude in our society, that is often what the case is now. Such people are lesser, therefore they could be treated differently. They don't have to have the same rights and responsibilities that we have. If we consider what we've said about the image of God, that all men have the image of God, then all human beings, regardless of their mental or physical capacity, should be treated as such. Lack of mental capacity does not affect the image-bearing qualities of a human being, nor does physical disability, nor does a cancer diagnosis, nor does dementia or anything else. For the last six months, my wife and I have been living with our in-laws, or my in-laws, because one, my father-in-law is increasingly becoming physically, uh, physically uh, disabled, as he's 90 years old, and my mother-in-law, who is in her late 80s, has got severe dementia. When I speak about the experiences that we go through to colleagues at work or to, to friends outside of the church, often they say, you know, if ever I get to that stage, I'm going to tell my family, get me on the first plane to Switzerland, get me booked in for Dignitas, and you can get me. I don't want to be a burden on society. <coughs> Whilst, from a human perspective, you can understand that thinking, because people don't believe that they're created in the image of God. They don't believe that there is any worth in them simply for being a human being. 
that sort of idea that I'm doing, euthanasia, is the answer. Is never the answer to someone who has diminished capability. To believe that shows a lack of understanding of what it means to be image bearers. And the prevalence of that thinking in our society shows how far the humanist, the humanist evolutionary world has gone, how far it has gone away from the, uh, the belief that all men are created in the image of God. Finally, such a prevalence of that godless thinking means that society has lost the fact that the image of God is in all human beings from the moment they are conceived. Therefore, if we reject that, we can see just how society wants to treat those who are unborn. And we must stand firm that the unborn human being nevertheless is the image bearer of God. Interesting statistics that a friend of mine showed to me recently is that uh, abortion is now the, the, the main cause of death in the world. More people die at the hands of abortion than die in any other way on our planet. And that's quite, quite shocking. But the reason it can be so is because the world fails to understand what the image of God is and where it starts in a human being. But when a human life becomes, becomes, um, uh, comes into being, that, at that moment, that image of God is there in that person. Therefore, we in the church must stand firm and stand out and say that no, God's image is present in all people, regardless their physical state, regardless of their mental state, regardless of what they do, all people bear the image of God. So to conclude then, God's word is clear as to who we are and why we have value and worth. It is because we are made in God's image that we have a higher value than any other aspects of creation. Only man was created in the image of God, and has those values within. To assign such worth to other aspects of God's creation is to diminish humanity, and that is what society has done very much. With such values comes responsibility as image bearers of God. We are accountable towards God for our actions of what we do towards God and towards other beings. Only man can be held accountable only man has the image of God within. To remove the image of God, as society has done, means that that accountability before God disappears. We're simply like every other evolved being, and our behaviours are simply aligned to this evolutionary spectrum. Morality and good can be dismissed as simple social constructs, and as such, optional hindrances to the progress of society. We see these pervasive attitudes and effects on, on the effects of the fall on the created image. Dominion has now given place to dominance and exploitation. Worthless pleasures have given place to the worship of God. Lust has given place to love. And secularism is overcoming spirituality. The fall has tainted the image with sinful man 
has not removed it. God's merciful salvation means that as new creatures, we can discover what it means to hold the image of God. We, well, we do not have the same forward attitudes to the image, but are able to rediscover them through the work of the Holy Spirit in it, through the salvation we experience through the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we grow in grace, we are to live out those attributes and to proclaim them to the world around us. And it's the only way that society can live in the way that God intended it to. We mustn't fall into the identity trap of society, seeking to redefine ourselves into ever narrower things. No, we as human beings are fearfully and wonderfully made in God's image. That is what we are, that is what we are to stand out for, and that is to guard and guide our thoughts in all aspects of society, in all aspects of our identity. There's much more that can be said on the subject, but God has created us in his image. He's created us to be like him spiritually. That is how we are to live. That is how we are to Closing here is number 806.